good morning, New Day. So good to see you guys, those of you here in person, those of you joining us online, thank you so much for being with us as we continue our current teaching series called Christ the King, which if you're new, is a study through the gospel according to Matthew. Now, last week our text was Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and last week our theme was the king's birth. And last week, what I was trying to show you is that uh, Jesus was born just the way that he was supposed to be born. He was born not scandalously, rather miraculously, he was born of the virgin, just as it was prophesied. Well, this week, we're in chapter 2. This week, we're going to start chapter 2. Last week, we concluded chapter 1. This week, we begin chapter 2. Our text this week is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And this week, we're not looking at the king's birth, rather, we're looking at the king's birthplace. And what I hope to show you this week is that, again, in fulfillment of prophecy, uh, Jesus was born right where he was supposed to be born, right where it was foretold by the prophets that he would be born, which is in Bethlehem of Judea. So Jesus was from Bethlehem of Judea. Now, that's the case for Jesus, but me... I was not born in Bethlehem of Judea, okay? I was born in Holyoke of Massachusetts, all right? That's where I hail from, all right? On June 5th, 1981, the sun had just come up when my pregnant mother knew the time had come to deliver me. Her and my dad actually had no idea if I was to be a boy or a girl because back then, okay, back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the earth, um, you only had an ultrasound if it was a high-risk pregnancy, and that was not the case for my mom. So they had no idea if I was to be born a boy or a girl that morning. So my mom told my dad, hey, it's time, and they just rushed out the door. But here's the deal. The day before, while at work, my dad, who was a painter, was doing some sanding, and some fleck of something shot out and hit him in his eyes. And it was like serious enough that when they walked out the front door of their house early that morning and the, and the morning sun hit my dad's eyes, it was like he was blinded from it. And so he turned to my mom and said, I can't drive you to the hospital. You got to drive yourself. So my mom got behind the steering wheel. My dad got in the passenger side and they rushed to the hospital. Now, how many of you understand that normally it's like the person who's in the passenger seat that needs the assistance, right? And so like when you pull up to the emergency room entrance at a hospital, you know, the attendants run out and they're like, let me help the person in the passenger side. And so the attendant runs out and says to my mom, ma'am, don't worry, he, your husband, he's in good care. We're going to get him right into the room, you know? And she's like, it's me, you know, like, you know, so uh, they went ahead and they got her into a room realizing, okay, it's not him. It's my mom. You know, why is she driving herself? Who knows? But let's get her the help she needs. Now, even though my dad, just because he was physically prevented from doing so, wasn't able to drive my mom to the hospital, uh, my mom uh, records that uh, he just was an excellent coach to her there in the delivery room. Now, you got to understand, my dad went to Springfield College for physical education, really into sports, and as my mom tells it, he kind of like applied that model to his coaching. So he's like, you know, hey, bada, 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 swing, bada, 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 you got this, bada, bada, you know, like that kind of thing. And, but anyway, he coached her is the point. Uh, to a great uh, delivery. So, uh, nine pound, 10 ounce baby came into the world. I know, speaking of prophecies of things to come in the future, you know, um, I was born a nine pound, 10 ounce baby at Providence Hospital 
in Holyoke, Massachusetts, all right? That is where I was born. But alas, today we are not talking about where I was born. Our focus in the sermon today, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, it's not about where I was born, it's about where Jesus was born. At first glance, this section of scripture, uh, it initially strikes us as just a story about the magi or the wise men who came from the east. But that's actually not the case. The Apostle Matthew's focus is to show how in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was born right where he was supposed to be born, which was again in Bethlehem of Judea. And we know that this is Matthew's focus because of how much ink he dedicates to Bethlehem. I mean, take a look. Let me just show it to you visually. We read in verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, blah, 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 blah. In verse 4, Herod inquires of the religious leaders where the Christ was to be born. So we understand uh, from this that it's a geographic location that's the focal point. In verse 5, the religious leaders answer that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. In verse 6, the religious leaders quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2, where the prophet foretells that Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem of the land of Judea, in the land of Judah. In other words, not any old Bethlehem, because you know how today there's like Springfield, Massachusetts, then there's Springfield, California, then there's Springfield, Vermont. Uh, So it was back then throughout the nation of Israel. There were multiple Bethlehems. But the prophet foretold he would be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Finally, in verse 8, Herod sends the Magi to Bethlehem to look for the newborn king. So friends, what's the focus of this passage? Bethlehem, the place that Messiah was foretold to be born. So even though our text shares the story of the Magi coming from the east into Jerusalem, Matthew's focus is actually not on the Magi, it's on the place that Messiah was supposed to be born. But since this prophecy of the Messiah's birthplace is fulfilled in the context of the story of the Magi, uh, we are going to go ahead and study that story today. And we've got a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. If you want to take notes today, now would be a great time to pull it out. Here's your first fill in the blank. The first thing we see in our text is what we're going to call the arrival. The arrival. And here we're covering the arrival of the Magi in Jerusalem. And we see this in verse 1 where Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, the question begs, who in the world are the Magi, right? Well, it's simple. The Magi were a priestly tribe of people from among the Medes. Here's a map, actually, of the Median Empire, so you can see where these people lived. And the Medes ruled the east, meaning the area east of Israel, roughly 700 years before Jesus was born. So the Medes were a people group. And the Magi were the people of one of the tribes of the Medes. Maybe thinking of it like this will help. The nation of Israel is comprised of various tribes, right? There were 12 of them. And of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. Well, in the same way, the uh, nation of Media was also divided into various tribes, but not 12, only six. 
And of the six, the tribe of Magi, that was the priestly tribe. So that's who the Medes were. And what we learn from the Old Testament book of Daniel is that the Magi served as advisors to the king of the east. That's what they did. They served as advisors to the king. For example, when the people of Judah, the southern portion of the nation of Israel, were exiled for their disobedience to God to the land of Babylon, four of the Israelite exiles, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were chosen by King Nebuchadnezzar to learn the ways of Babylon. And after three years of training, we read, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Friends, the magicians referenced here are the magi. Well, one day the king has a dream that greatly troubled him. So we read that the king commanded the magicians or the magi, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And the king threatened the magi as follows. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. So in other words, I'll kill you and your whole family. But the magi couldn't tell the king his dream. So the king was angry and very furious and commanded as a result that all the wise men, all the magi of Babylon be destroyed. And this is where Daniel enters stage right to save the day. God gave the interpretation of the dream to Daniel. Daniel gave the interpretation of the dream to the king. And in so doing, he greatly pleased the king and spared the lives and the lives of the family members of every single magi throughout the kingdom of Babylon. The king was so pleased with Daniel, in fact, that we read in Daniel 5.11 that Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel chief of the magicians. In other words, chief of the magi. So Daniel was appointed chief of the magi, and we have no record in scripture of the magi objecting. I mean, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, right? But that wasn't because of the jealousy of the magi. That was because of the jealousy of the satraps, who were the regional governors. The Magi very likely loved Daniel because Daniel was the reason that they were spared from death and Daniel's the reason they all still had wives and children. So likely the Magi loved Daniel. Now Daniel had ingratiated himself to the people through being able to interpret the dream and save their lives and Daniel took advantage now being chief of the magicians and being loved by the magicians to go ahead and influence them for the Lord. Daniel no doubt shared with them the Jewish scriptures, which were filled predominantly with the story of how God would one day send a great king into the world who would rule over God's eternal kingdom. Now, Daniel no doubt shared many messianic prophecies with the Magi, and time doesn't permit me today to cover all of them, but we will cover one very important one, and I think you'll quickly see why um, I'm saying it's so important. We're going to look at the one from Numbers chapter 24. In Numbers 24, Balaam prophesied this, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Here, Balaam prophesies that a scepter or ruler or king 
will rise up out of Israel. And he says that the sign of the king's coming will be the sign of the star. Well, 600 years pass and nothing happens. But the prophecies were passed down from one generation of Magi to the next. And they always were keeping watch for these 600 years for the sign of the star. Which would indicate to them that the Messiah, God's promised king, had arrived. And this leads us nicely to the second thing we see in our text. First we saw the arrival and now we're going to look at the appearance. The reason that the Magi arrived in Jerusalem is because in the east they saw the sign of the star. And we see this in verse 2. When the Magi arrived, they started asking all around Jerusalem, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Now, have you ever wondered, is this like an actual star? You know, what is the nature of this star? Was it an actual star or was it something else? I've wondered about this. Well, I love that my job is to study all week long to prepare to have answers to questions like these. Let's look at what this was, okay? And the Word of God informs us. The English word star, it comes from the Hebrew word aster, which literally translated means blazing forth. In other words, it means brilliant light. Now, the word austere, it does sometimes refer to an actual literal star, but it can refer to anything that is blazing forth in brilliant light. Sometimes in the Bible, it's used of an angel. Sometimes in the Bible, it's used of men. And sometimes in the Bible, it's even used of lightning because the word literally just means blazing forth with brilliant light. And this is why I personally conclude that this was not an actual star. I believe what the, the Magi witnessed there uh, in the east was nothing less than the glory of God. Now you say, Mike, I'm not familiar with the concept of the glory of God. So you're going to have to explain. Well, let me do just that. The glory of God is a concept that we're introduced into uh, in the Old Testament, but then is repeated again in the New. And in the Old Testament, the glory of God, it's just the presence of God being manifested as light. So anytime in the Old Testament, God wanted to, to uh, manifest his presence, his presence was manifested as blazing, brilliant, glorious light. For example, in Exodus chapter 13... When the Israelites were traveling for the 40 years in the wilderness after they came up out of their slavery uh, from Egypt, the Bible tells us that God manifested his presence to them in the daytime in a cloud of blazing light. And then God manifested his presence to them in the evening in a pillar of blazing fire. Likewise, in Exodus 33, when Moses went up on the mountain so that God could show Moses his glory, God manifested his presence in brilliant light. You may recall that Moses came down the mountain and everyone was like, yo, Mo, why is your face glowing? And he was like, oh, well, I was just up experiencing the glory of the Lord. 
Finally, in Exodus chapter 40, when the glory of God descended on the tabernacle, it manifested, God's glory manifested as brilliant light. It says it filled up the tabernacle and it shot out of the tabernacle in a blaze of glorious light. So over and over and over in the Old Testament, we're introduced to this concept of the glory of the Lord. And that's just God manifesting his presence as brilliant light. Have you ever heard of the Shekinah glory of God and been confused? I'm like, the Shekinah glory of what? What's going on, you know? Well, the Shekinah glory of God, that's just the glory of God manifested as light. It's God's glorious presence manifested as light. And again, this is not some weird concept that's only in the Old Testament, but we don't see it in the New. Uh, you're actually familiar with this concept of the glory of the Lord. Let me show you. We read in Luke chapter 2 that on the night Jesus was born, here's what we read. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. Why? Because of the blazing brilliance of the light of the glory of God. So I believe that what the Magi saw then was Jesus, God in the flesh, descending from heaven to earth in the glory of blazing, brilliant light. Now, if this sounds too strange to you, let me remind you that this is exactly the picture the Bible gives us of what it'll be like when Jesus comes a second time. You familiar with the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ? Well, when we get to Matthew chapter 24, many months from now, we'll cover this in depth, but today I'll just give you a snippet. But Matthew 24 teaches that at the second coming of Christ, he will descend from heaven to earth in a brilliant blaze of shining light that all the world will see. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 30. It says that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. So here's a picture of utter darkness. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then in this utter darkness created by God will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Lock that in your minds, the sign of of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power, let's say those last three words out loud, and great glory. Friends, this is the Shekinah glory of God. This is the glory of God. This is Jesus returning in brilliant light. So this is the time that follows the great tribulation, where God makes the sun and the moon and the stars go dark so that there will be this beautiful contrast against which Jesus will return from heaven to earth in brilliant, blazing, glorious light. So it really shouldn't come as a surprise to us then that since the sign of the Son of Man at Christ's second coming was brilliant, blazing light, that the sign of the Son of Man at his first coming was also Blazing, brilliant, glorious light. Do you see? This is none other than Jesus descending from heaven to earth. Friends, the Magi witnessed Jesus' incarnation as far as I'm concerned based on my study of the Word of God. So when I read that the Magi saw his star, I take that to mean that they saw the glory of the Lord. They saw Jesus descending from heaven to earth in brilliant, glorious light. So friends, that is the appearance, the appearance of that 
light that the Magi saw in the east that brought them to Jerusalem to look for this new king who was the fulfillment of the prophecy given by Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. Okay, this leads us to the third thing that we see in our text, which is the agitation, the agitation. When Herod, who was king over Judea, heard that the Magi were looking for the one born king of the Jews, we read that he was deeply disturbed or or greatly agitated and all of Jerusalem with him. I've introduced you to the Magi. I've introduced you to the concept of the glory of God. Let me now introduce you to Herod. Herod was born in 72 BC, about 70 years before Christ was born. Because of his father's good relations with the emperor of Rome in 47 BC, when he was 25 years old, he was appointed governor of Galilee, which was the southern portion of the nation of Israel. And for seven years, Herod did this amazing job at quelling rebellion uh, in the north, in the northern part of Israel. He just kept that part of the Roman Empire in order. He did a great job. So then, in 40 BC, when the Parthians from the east started a rebellion in Judea by invading that land, Herod ended up getting a promotion. And he went from uh, governor of Galilee in the north to king of Judea in the south. Specifically, he, is appointed, he was appointed by the Roman Senate as king of the Jews. Now, it took him three years, but he finally defeated the Parthian invaders from the east. And in 37 BC, he became the sole ruler of Judea. Again, the southern portion of the nation of Israel. All right? So Herod had literally fought hard, blood, sweat, and tears for this title, King of the Jews. So at the smallest inkling of a threat to his throne and his power, Herod responded with maniacal bloodshed. Check this out. For fear of a threat to his throne, Herod killed his wife, his brother's wife, three of his own sons, a couple cousins, and several uncles. This is why it was said of Herod, it was better to be his pig than to be his relative because he was just, if he thought you were a threat to him, to his throne, to his power, you were dead. Innocent or not, didn't matter. And this kind of leads us to why the Bible says that all Jerusalem was agitated with Herod. He was agitated for fear of threat to his throne and power, but the people of Jerusalem were agitated for fear of their lives. Because when Herod felt threatened, didn't matter if you were innocent or not, people died. And so we see the agitation. The next thing we see in our text, the fourth thing we see, is what we're going to call the assembly. So we just looked at the agitation, now we're looking at the assembly. That is, when Herod heard that a new king had been born, he called an assembly in order to find this new king. And this we see in verses 4 to 6. He, Herod, called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law. And he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler or king will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. So follow me here. Herod knew that the Jews, in accordance with the prophetic writings, were awaiting their Messiah. 
And when the Magi came asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews, Herod immediately understood that the Jewish Messiah had been born and he was born to be king. So Herod understood this. So naturally, Herod, sensing a threat to his throne, sought to go ahead and snuff out this new king. I mean, Herod had stolen the kingship from the Parthians, and now he's afraid that Jesus is going to steal it from him, and so he just wants to take him out. And so what he does is he calls this assembly, and he calls together the leading elite of Israel, which comprised of two groups, the leading priests and then the teachers of the religious law. The leading priests were a group made up primarily uh, of Sadducees, and then the teachers of the law were made up primarily of the Pharisees. And I'll introduce you to both groups uh, more and more and more as we continue through Matthew's gospel in the months and months to come. But Herod calls together these two groups, which represented the religious elite of Israel, and he asks them, where is the Christ, the Messiah, to be born? And so what they do is they take him right to Scripture. They say, oh, that's a simple one. Go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2 in our Scriptures. And what you'll read is the prophet Micah foretelling that the king of the Jews will be born in Bethlehem. But not any Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judea. Well, having ascertained the information he needed, Herod dismisses the assembly. We now pick up in verses 7 through 8 with the attempt. Okay, we just looked at uh, the assembly and now we're looking at the attempt. And in these verses, we're dealing with the attempt on Herod's part to kill this new king of the Jews. We read that after the assembly... Herod summoned the Magi secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So at the public assembly of the religious leaders, Herod ascertains where the Messiah is to be born. And now, here in this clandestine meeting with the Magi, Herod seeks to ascertain information concerning when the Magi saw the brilliant light of the Lord in the east. And of course, he wants to know when they saw the light so he can figure out the age of the child he's trying to murder. We have to remember back to verse 1, friends. Verse 1 informs us that the Magi arrived after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So clearly some time has passed. I know all the Christmas cards have the Magi uh, at the manger scene, but that's neither biblically nor historically accurate, okay? They came after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So Herod wants to find out when they saw the light so he can figure out the age of the child he's trying to kill. So that's why I've entitled this section, The Attempt. This is Herod's attempt at killing this new king of the Jews that he's threatened by. Okay, this leads us nicely to the sixth thing that we see in our text, which we're going to call the adoration, the adoration. And we see this in verses 9 to 11. As Herod continued to work on his plot to murder this new king, we read in verse 9 that the Magi went on their way. 
And behold, the star, or blazing light, that they had seen in the east, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, again, the blazing light, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Hence the adoration, okay? They fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why did the presence of God manifest itself once again as brilliant, blazing, glorious light? And the answer is simple. Herod said to them, go search for the child in Bethlehem. But friends, the Magi came after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so Jesus wasn't there anymore. Herod told him to go to the wrong place, so God reveals his presence to them in a blaze of glorious light and leads them to the place where the child was, which was very likely back in Nazareth at this point in time. I think a good argument can be made that by this time they had returned back to where they lived, which was Nazareth. But in any event, the presence of God, manifest in blazing light, led the Magi to Jesus. And when they found him, they adored him. When they found him, they worshipped him. They knew that Jesus was more than just some earthly king. They knew that this king was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He was more than just man. He was God in the flesh. And so they worshipped him as such. Now, they didn't just worship him uh, as king. The Bible says they also presented him with gifts, and this is actually really significant. Here's the deal. 900 years before this, the queen of Sheba came from the east, the same place the Magi were from, and they came into Israel to King Solomon. And we read this. She arrived in Jerusalem with a large group of attendants and a great caravan of camels loaded with spices, large quantities of gold, and precious jewels. Friends, this was the custom in the East for visiting a king. Now, as a little side note here, a little parenthetical comment, this is very likely the best picture of what it was actually like for the Magi to arrive in Jerusalem. They likely came, just like the Queen of Sheba, with a large group of attendants and a great caravan of animals. Now, it's 900 years later, so it's no longer camels. Now it's Persian steeds, Persian horses. And it's no longer gold and spices and jewels. Uh, now it's gold and frankincense and myrrh. So 900 years, the specifics change, but it's basically the same thing. In keeping with the custom of the East, the Magi arrive to present the king, King Jesus, the king that was foretold of in Numbers 24, with presents fit for a king. So in the same way that Queen of Sheba came to Solomon and said, your king, let me honor you with the finest products of our land. So the Magi came to Jerusalem uh, to look for Jesus. They were led by the light uh, of God to where he was. And when they found him, they too presented him with gifts. Gifts fit for a king. So you see, friends, Herod knew Jesus was king which is why he was trying to kill him. You didn't want another king taking his place. But the Magi knew he was king too, which is why they presented him with the gifts of a king. Now, what purpose did the gifts serve before we move to our final point? They actually served a practical purpose. 
I mean, next week, one of our board members, Dr. Josh Whitehead, will be here with us, and he's going to teach on verses 13 to 23, part of which shares how Jesus' family had to flee to Egypt to escape Herod's murderous plot. And here's the deal. The gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh were God's financial provision for Jesus and his family to live and survive and be sustained in Egypt while they were waiting for this threat of Herod to be neutralized. You have to remember from Luke chapter 2 verse 24, we learn that Jesus's family was poor. Mary and Joseph didn't offer the gift of a lamb. They were poor. So when they went to the temple to do what was customary when a Jewish uh, child was born in Israel, they didn't present the, the lamb. They were too poor for that. So they presented two turtle doves. That was the gift of a poor person. So these gifts of the Magi served to be the financial provision Jesus' family needed while they were um, in exile in Egypt uh, trying to avoid being murdered by Herod. Okay, the final thing we see in our text, number seven, the avoidance. It's a real short point here. After the Magi worshiped Jesus and presented him with the gifts of a king, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. In other words, they sought to avoid Herod. So, the avoidance. And friends, that's the story of the Magi. But let's not any single one of us be confused. Because this is actually not a story about the Magi. The focus in the Bible, it's always on Jesus. And the focus of this story is how Jesus was born exactly where he was supposed to be born, in Bethlehem of Judea. We only told the story because this prophecy is fulfilled in the context of the story. But the story's not about the Magi. The story's not about the Pharisees. The story's not about the Sadducees. The story's not about Herod. The story is about Jesus. And here's what Matthew's doing. He's trying to build our confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That Jesus is who Matthew claimed him to be. The promised king who would rule over God's eternal kingdom. And this is why in Matthew chapters 1 to 2, in particular, Matthew shows us, here is why you can know that it's true that Jesus of Nazareth is God's promised king. It's because Jesus and Jesus alone fulfills all the prophecies about God's promised king. For example, friends, take a look. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, Matthew writes about the king's ancestry. For this purpose to show that in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was born and descended from Abraham and from David. Racially from Abraham, royally from King David. And then in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, Matthew writes about the king's birth. For this purpose to show that in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was miraculously, not scandalously, but miraculously born of the virgin, just like the prophet Isaiah said he would be. And that brings us to today, where in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, Matthew writes about not the king's birth, but the king's birthplace. To show us that in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was born exactly where the prophet Micah said he would be born, in Bethlehem of Judea. 
Friends, you see, Matthew wants us to bolster our confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's trying to bolster our confidence that Jesus is who Matthew himself claims Jesus to be. God's promised king who was born to rule over God's eternal kingdom. Matthew is so eager to get to teaching us what Jesus taught him personally about discipleship. He wants to let us know how to live in a way that pleases God. He wants to let us know what it means to follow Jesus. He wants to let us know, practically speaking, what it looks like for a follower of Jesus to appoint him as king of their life. He's so eager to get to all this. But before Matthew just dives into the teaching of the king, he's working hard here to first establish in our minds that Jesus is that king. And friends, aren't you glad that he is? I don't know about you, but for me, I'm not really interested in basing my entire life on the teachings of someone that I don't even know is God in the flesh. If he's God, I want to listen to him. If he's not, then he's crazy and I want to stay far away. So Matthew begins exactly where he needs to begin with showing us that Jesus fulfills prophecy. I mean, summed up, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 is this. Son of Abraham, check. Son of David, check. Born of a virgin, check. Born in Bethlehem, check. Born in Bethlehem of Judea, check. And next week in verses 13 to 23, we see three more prophecies that he fulfilled. And then after establishing this, now he's going to get into all the practical teaching. But he's got to let us know first and foremost, Jesus is who he said to be. He is God's promised king. He is the savior of the world. He is the one who will one day rule over God's eternal kingdom. So Matthew's giving us reasons to appoint Jesus to his rightful place over our lives. He's giving us reason to appoint Jesus as king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, friends, based on Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies, me personally, I have never understood the skeptics' claim that Christians have blind faith. That irritates me. I'm just saying. And it irritates me because, yes, we have faith, but no, it's not a blind faith. It's a faith that's rooted in history. It's still faith, but it's a faith that's rooted in historical facts about Jesus. We believe not because we have blind faith, rather because we have a historically reliable document called the Word of God that records how Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy, fulfilling many uh, minutia details that were told of him hundreds of years before he was born, including many things he had no control over. Jesus couldn't control that he was a son of Abraham any more than he could control that he was a son of David. Jesus couldn't control that he was born of a virgin any more than he could control that he was born in Bethlehem or Bethlehem of Judea. Friends, Jesus is that king. And we don't believe in him based on blind faith. Our faith is rooted in history. But because it is, we who follow Jesus have appointed him king over our lives. Because it's the only appropriate response. I mean, when Herod learned about this king, he sought to put him to death. When the Magi learned of this same Jesus, they sought to worship him. No wonder the Bible sometimes refers to the Magi as wise men. I don't have any problem with that translation. They were wise because when they learned of the king who God promised to send into the world, they sought after him. They bowed down and they worshiped him. 
and they presented him with gifts, which simply means they recognized him and acknowledged him as the king that he was. My question to each of you today, whether you're here in person or online, is have you done the same? Have you, like Herod, sought to put Jesus to death in your life? Or, like the wise men, have you sought to run after Jesus to say you are that king? Let me bow down before you in worship. Let me appoint you and acknowledge you as the rightful king that you are, king of my life. Friends, it's one thing to call Jesus king and to acknowledge that he is who he is. It's another thing entirely to appoint him king over your life. But friends, when Jesus comes at the time of his second coming to establish an eternal kingdom that he will rule over forever, whether or, you or, I, whether or not you and I live as citizens in that kingdom for all of eternity is based on whether or not we trust Jesus as Savior and whether or not we appoint him to be king, the rightful ruler over our lives. And if you've never done that today, I just want to implore you to make today be the day that you do. And it's real simple. If you'd like to, I want to invite you to pray with me. Wherever you are today, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? Let's just go to God in prayer. Would you pray with me? Not out loud, but in your heart, would you pray with me? Just say, Heavenly Father, thank you for laying out these two choices so plainly. Like Herod, I'm going to seek to put Jesus uh, to death in my life. Or like the Magi, I'm going to recognize him as king and use my life to adore him, to worship him, to serve him. God, these are the two choices. And today I'm going to choose the way of wisdom. I'm going to choose the way of the Magi. I'm not going to be a fool like Herod and seek to snuff out Jesus in my life. Not because I have blind faith, but because there's historical reason to do so. I'm going to place my faith in this Jesus, the one who fulfills prophecy. And I'm going to make him king of my life. And in the weeks and months to come, as I learn what he taught, I'm going to listen and obey as best I can. Because as king of kings and lord of lords, he has every right to tell me what to do. So God, today I choose the way of the magi, the way of wisdom. Today I'm placing my faith in Jesus to save me from my sins and I'm appointing him king over my life. So now I ask in accordance with your promise, you would please grant to me eternal life. And I pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.